Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. I know that I hung on the windy tree, wounded with a spear for nine long nights, dedicated to Odin, myself to myself, on that tree whose roots run from a place that no man knows. No bread did they give me, nor a drink from a horn. Down I peered. I clutched the runes, screaming I took them, and then fell back again. So Tom Holland... That was Odin. I know. In the uh, Poetic Edda, so compiled in the 13th century, but probably drawing on a longer tradition, although that, of course, is, is up for debate. It's one of the best-known things about Odin and the Norse myths and the world of the Vikings, the Allfather and his runes, the, the raven god, all this sort of stuff. It's, it's tremendously exciting material, isn't it? And Odin, of course, very much a friend of the show because he's featured in the episode we did on the Norse gods. But also he did tremendously well in our World Cup of Gods, didn't he? Did he? Well, he reached the final and I frankly thought... <laughs> he was thrashed by Athena, it has to be said. I wanted Odin to win. I, I'm not going to deny that I wanted Odin to win. And I feel slightly cheated even... I mean, you know that the World Cup of Gods is a very sore spot with me, Tom, yes, because I of do. your shameful campaign against Anubis. However, yes, let's I move do. on from, from I, I do. But, but I think, so when we talked about Odin in the World Cup of Gods, we were talking about him very much as a kind of fan favourite, the star of Marvel comics and films. And You're a foolish, impetuous boy. Yes. Sorry, that was my Anthony Hopkins. Very, very good. I mean, all that kind of stuff. But lurking over Odin and over the stuff that the, the Vikings believe, and indeed over the Vikings generally, is the nagging sense that it's all altogether weirder yeah. than, perhaps, than perhaps we care to think. Because a lot of the weirdness, it turns out, is actually quite unsettling. And there is one scholar who I think more than any other who, for me, has articulated this. Uh, and it's Neil Price, who is British, but went to work as an archaeologist in Sweden. Very, very distinguished. He's professor of archaeology now at, at Uppsala. Uh, he wrote an excellent book called Children of Ash and Elm, didn't he, that came out and I think was nominated by a, a leading historian who writes for the Sunday Times, perhaps not a million miles from where you're sitting now as the history book of the year. Britain's top book critic, I think, is the, uh, is the technical <laughs> yeah. description, Tom, yeah. as the Sunday Times history book of the year. So there is no higher praise. No higher praise indeed. Uh, and I speak with experience of that. Neil was also the advisor on The Northman that brilliant recent film about Icelandic epic. Yeah, you loved it, didn't you? Yeah. However, the book that Neil wrote that really had an impact on me was a book called The Viking Way, which had kind of legendary status among anyone who was interested in the period because it was almost impossible to get hold of. And you'd kind of go on book groups and people would say, oh, I think there might be a copy in you know, <laughs> some obscure library 
buried in yeah. some distant land. And the whole thing came to take on the kind of connotations of a, a, a quest in Tolkien or something. Anyway, I finally tracked down a copy of this book. And basically, to sum it up, it's about how unbelievably weird the Vikings were. Mm -hmm. And when I read it, I immediately knew that I was onto something because I just want to, I just want to read what Neil wrote. Because when he went from, um, from England to, uh, to, to Sweden, he's kind of sitting out looking at a forest. Uh, and he, he wrote, I was disturbed by the fact that the ancestral stories of the North should seem so much more intelligible when looking out over those Swedish trees than they had done while sitting in my office in England. So that immediate sense that perhaps a kind of, you know, an academic study in England isn't necessarily the best place to come to terms with the yeah. Vikings and with Odin and all that stuff. But he then he then went on to write um, about the, the the way that the kind of the models, the frameworks of explanation that academics have constructed around the Vikings. And he says, where do we find in these? Serious consideration of the torch-carrying man who walked backwards around a funeral pyre completely naked and with his fingers covering his anus. We've all done that, Tom. We've, well, have we? <laughs> the herd of six-legged reindeer depicted on a wall covering, the armed women who worked a loom made from human body parts, the elderly Sammy man who was buried in a Nordic woman's clothes, the men who could understand the howling of wolves, the women with raised sores who paced beneath trees of hanging bodies, the men who had sex with a slave girl and then strangled her as a formal sign of respect for her dead master, the woman buried with silver toe rings and a bag full of narcotics. Now, Dominic, you've written a book about the Vikings. Have you put any of that in? Well, it's a children's book, Tom. So, um, <laughs> okay. Actually, do you know what? Do you know what the uh, the strangling of the slave girl um, is in that book? Right. Yeah. Because uh, I have the funeral. I have um, Ibn Fadlan, the great traveller, the great sort of Arabic travel writer, describing this funeral. I mean, I did tone it down for child readers, but I have yeah. to say, the penguin did raise their eyebrows when I put that in. And as always, my son said, "It's the best thing in the book. More of this stuff, please." And we and we had it in our episode on um, on the Vikings going up in the east, didn't we? In the east, yeah. A lot of people, if you haven't listened to that episode, I mean, that's one of the strangest episodes we did, isn't it? Well, I think this episode is going to be stranger because we have with us none other than the great Neil Price himself. So, Neil, um, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the rest is history. Thank you. Would you say that kind of Viking weird shit sums up <laughs> what what you've written about in the Viking way? Uh, sadly, yes. I think in your introduction, you you really captured what I felt my motivation for for working on all of that. Um, and it, it's not so much things that I discovered that no one knew before. It's more things that we all knew about, but just had kind of collectively ignored. And when I did my uh, my my first degree back in the eighties in in London, um, the Vikings I learned about were, were very traditional people. And, and there was nothing wrong with, with that Viking age. It's just that there was something missing from it. And, and the more I read and the more I encountered all these weird things, um, I, I wanted to put them back into that picture. So that's, that's really where it, it started. So do you think what happened to the Vikings? I mean, we, won't, we don't want to sort of get into a massive historiographical discussion, but is what happened to them a combination of Christianity, Wagner, Marvel Comics and so on, that basically sort of tamed them and took the strangeness out, if you like. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to put it. I think also that their strangeness has kind of been weaponized and, and taken on new forms. And the thing to remember about all of those legacies of the Vikings is that 
wherever they come from, whether it's sort of Victorian imperialism or the Nazis or, or whether it's um, reenactors or Marvel movies, you know, a whole spectrum of different things, they say nothing whatsoever about life as actually lived in the Viking Age. And it's that life that I'd like to try and look at. But it's a ch- there's a challenge, isn't there, for, for an academic? A huge one, yeah. Who has to kind of, you know, be objective, use the cool measured language of, of, of scholarly prose to deal with people for whom that is not an aspiration at all, who, who, who's, whose kind of visions and whose understanding of the world may be profoundly impossible to articulate in that way. I mean, do you think that's a kind of a, a fair summation of the problem perhaps that you face? Yes, I do. I, I think it's it's one that all academics face. Um, and I was conscious when I wrote The Viking Way. It, it came out in 2002 originally, so it's, it's 20 years old now. Um, that sort of sentiment that you quoted about me being disturbed by the fact that those ancestral stories seem so much more intelligible when looking out over Swedish trees. There's a risk that that's a kind of romanticising view. There's mm. me thinking, wow, I'm in touch with the, the Viking Age. And, and of course, I'm not. Um, so you have to guard against that as well. But I do think that whatever you're studying about the past, it really does help to go to the places that you're talking about, to see the landscapes, um, to you know, to experience what a Scandinavian winter is like. When you look at, say, reconstruction drawings, it's always summer. You know, it's they're never sort of hunkered down in, in a yeah. sort of snowed-in building, and yet that's a very large part of the year. So to, to sort of Trying to get that kind of experiential aspect of things, I think, is quite important. But always to to keep your guard up around that kind of romanticization, and it's that romanticizing that I think the Vikings have been freighted with for for centuries, really. So let's start at the very most basic, sort of fundamental level, Neil. Um, we're talking about Scandinavia. Um, so what what are now Denmark, Norway, and Sweden? In what sort of? I mean, do you stick to the sort of fairly traditional dates for the Viking Age? So Roughly, you know, a hundred, a couple of hundred years after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, through to 1066 or so, or do you think those dates are wrong? It's not so much that they're wrong. I think that uh, I go for a broader time span and also one that's less specific. Um, the traditional Viking Age was was always taken to begin with the raid on the monastery of Lindisfarne in Northumbria in 793, and then, as you said, end in 1066 with the, the Battle of Stamford Bridge. But I, I think that apart from getting away from a kind of kings and battles history, uh, you know, looking at it in more social terms, I think the first half of the 8th century, so we're talking about the period, you know, 720 to 750, I think there's a lot of different trends in society, a lot of social processes all coming together kind of randomly to, to kick something off. And I think understanding what that something is that historians call the Viking Age, that, that's one of the, the big tasks we have ahead of us. But, and then broadly speaking, I'd say about the, the middle of the 11th century, so 1050s, 1060s. And just as there's no one start to the Viking Age, there's no single end to it either. It's, its motors wind down in different ways, different speeds in different places. Um, so as long as we keep that broad vagueness in mind, I, I think that's, that's where we are. But Neil, I mean, one of the things, obviously, probably the main cultural trend that happens in, it's happened by the 11th century, is that the Viking world is becoming Christian. And Christianity imports a, a particular understanding of humanity's relationship with the supernatural and the divine, and it's one that that gives rise to to, to what we call religion. The, you know, this this category that is separate from what we would call the secular kind of. You know, we can divide them in two. Whereas 
the sense I very much get from your book is that that would be a kind of a division that you wouldn't accept as something that the Vikings would have recognized, that they, they didn't have a category of religion. The supernatural and, and, and what we would call the kind of the everyday world were absolutely interwoven. Would that be fair? Yes, absolutely, Tom. Um, I, that was one of the things I, I reacted against when I was first writing that book or starting the research for it, was that so many syntheses of the Viking Age would have kind of chapter four religion. It was compartmentalised and packaged. And I think it's part of their perception of reality. Nothing more or less than that. And so even the concept of supernatural, I think that's wrong because it's all natural. It's just different kinds of nature. And asking, um, I mean, today we can ask people you know, of, of any faith, do, do you believe in God? It's a meaningless question in the Viking Age. If you ask, do you believe in Odin? It'd be like saying, do you believe in a mountain? It, it's just part of part of the world. And I suppose trying to sum up the way I look at the Viking Age is to take as my starting point. It's a very difficult thing to do. But this idea of their view of the world um, and I think that's what makes them different as well to the people around them. And it's something I think we've underestimated because most of the, the cultures on the European continent, certainly to, to the south and west of the Vikings, not so much in, in the east, are Christian. And the, the way in which they approach everything, as, as you just said, Tom, it, it's, it's an utterly different starting point to that of the Viking of Scandinavians. And I think recognizing what their starting point might have been is the place we need to start. And that's that's what I've tried to do. Can I ask a very sort of basic question? So you talk about the starting point. Let's imagine I have started out in the Viking Age. In other words, I'm a child. What, what do people tell me about the world and about, okay, I can't use the word the supernatural, but what we would now call the supernatural. So do people tell me stories of a pantheon of gods? Do they have a sense of as it were, the Marvel Comics kind of view of Norse mythology is this idea that the inevitable progress towards Ragnarok and all that sort of the narrative thrust. Am I told that as a, as a child? Or am I told the same thing as children in other parts of Scandinavia? Or is it localized? You mentioned the word telling. And I think that is the absolute key because they live inside a world of stories. And one of the things I, I bore my students with is, is to say repeatedly that the Norse, for want of a better word, didn't know that they had the Norse myths. That's something that we've created, that scholars have created. When you go in a bookshop now, you can buy loads of books on the Norse myths, but that's because they've been fossilised as a sort of, effectively, a kind of holy book for the Vikings, but which is not real at all. And at the time, I think that those stories were organic and they changed. You mentioned whether they were local or not. We, we don't know exactly what they told their children in this valley as opposed to the one over the other side of the mountains. But the, the sheer sort of variety and contradiction in the mythology that we have suggests that it was a very varied world. And in terms of what you tell your children, in the same way as you know, don't go in the forest because you might get eaten by a bear or you might meet an elf and you, you want to be careful of them. And that kind of advice for life, I think, is something that's baked into existence from childhood onwards. And in terms of the gods, I think they're a kind of a much more distant element of people's lives than we might think. We, we tend to centralise the gods as a pantheon. You know, there's, you, you've mentioned them. There's, there's Odin and Thor and Freya and people like Loki, the, you know, the, the, the Marvel gods as well. Um, I don't think anybody thought they were going to encounter Odin on a Saturday night. 
But I think that you might well meet those elves who lived in the stone behind your house and putting some butter out for them. And what would that mean to meet an elf? That's a good question. And this, <laughs> this is one of the things that um, it's hard to be specific about. Yeah. Uh, this, this might sound like a tangent, but it kind of answers your, your question. There is a, a remarkable sort of poetic list of the kings of central Sweden called the, the List of the Inglings. The Inglings is, is the name of their family. And it tells you what happens to each of the Ingling kings. And one of them falls into a vat of mead and drowns. And you know, another one gets kicked in the head by his horse and so on. But the one I like best is, is led into a rock by a dwarf and never seen again. <laughs> so, oh, no. so that's what happens if you meet a, a dwarf or an elf. <laughs> yeah. um, th- there's this idea of, of, of nature as a force in itself, something you have to encounter, something you have to negotiate with, keep on the right side of. And I think that idea of life as a conversation with a kind of invisible population is close to what we've later called Norse religion. And I think the gods are kind of the highest part of that. They're the most remote part of it. But if you're part of the highest levels of society, if you're a king or a jarl or something like that, then you're probably rather closer to that level of the other than the average farmer. Because there's a story, isn't there, of um, one of the kings of Norway who has got an English bishop with him and is supposedly converted to Christianity. And then this Gandalf-like figure with one eye and a brimmed hat turns up and lays on a kind of enormous feast in a big cauldron. And everyone tucks in. And then the bishop in the morning, when he learns about it, has it thrown over. And obviously, it's Odin has come to visit. So presumably, for kings, there is a sense that Odin might come, and, and particularly on a battlefield, that Odin might be someone who is present watching what is happening. Yes, and, and there's um, one of the things that is attached to the Norse gods is that they're gods of something. So you know, Thor as the god of thunder or um, Freya as the, the goddess of, of love usually. And, and these things are, are not, I, I think they're a, a, a kind of misunderstanding because the, the Norse divinities are not necessarily gods of any one thing at all. So there are lots of war gods, for example, but they're gods of different aspects of war. And you mentioned Odin. He is very much the god of elites, but he's also the god of the homeless. He's the god of wanderers. Um, he's the god of the mind. He's one of the gods of magic. He's certainly a war god. Um, but most of all, he's the, the god of, of wisdom and a kind of elevated mental faculty, the thing that kings ought to have. And this idea of, of kings having a personal relationship with someone like that is, is very important. And some of the early Viking um, monarchs, they, they claim descent from the gods. They, they try to sort of build themselves in to those genealogies as well. The queen is descended from Woden, isn't she? So that's a, <laughs> it's an ongoing thing. So just on Odin, Odin in the sort of the version that has passed down to sort of generations of British children, his use basically, isn't he? But I get the sense from your books that Odin is a much stranger and more terrifying figure than, than Zeus. Is that is that fair? I think so. I, I think this idea of, of relating the Norse gods to classical divinities certainly has some, some truth to it. Um, there are many aspects of, of Norse mythology that you could clearly see have something to do with Greek and Roman um, stories and, and so on. And, and there's this idea of the gods as basically a kind of large squabbling family who are not entirely trustworthy. And I think that lack of trust is something that particularly sort of coalesces around Odin. 
He's a, a very contradictory figure. Like, like I said, he, he's the, the god of elites, but also the god of, of wanderers. Um, he's a, a being in whom it's very unwise to place any real faith. He can support you and support you and support you and then stab you in the back um, or suddenly give victory to your enemies. Um, but there's also a kind of odd fairness to him, I think, that... that um, there's still a kind of sort of basic justice behind what he does. There are consistent stories of, say, um, warriors, human warriors who are enemies in life, expecting to meet in Valho, Valhalla, um, as equals, and then they'll be sitting at the benches and drinking and, and so on. So there's this kind of cycle of completeness around Odin as well. Looking for sort of one thing to really characterise what Odin is about, it's knowledge and the fact that he will give anything at all for knowledge. So his eye. But also hanging on the tree, right? Exactly, yes. As you read at the beginning, he, he sacrifices himself to himself, which is a deeply weird thing to do. Um, and in this, this sort of delirium, he, he has a vision. That's where the runes come from. He sees them in this vision and, and picks them up. But Neil, they're hanging on the tree. So I assumed, maybe because I've spent too much time talking to Tom, I had assumed that that was a later Christian formula that the Icelandic writers or bards or whatever had just picked up and, and imposed onto Odin. But do you think people in the ninth century, let's say, that they're hanging on the tree, you know, that it, that it was there then as an idea? I think it's hard to be sure, but the influence of Christianity on lots of different aspects of the Norse mythological stories is very clear. There is a kind of holy tree in the Norse sort of traditional tales, this Yggdrasil, it's this great ash tree that holds the universe together. And it's usually assumed that that's the tree that is being talked about in that poem. Yeah. But the idea of Odin sacrificing himself could have merged with the idea of, of a man nailed to a, a cross. And he's pierced with a spear, so, you know, also resonance is there. But at the same time, Odin has a, a holy spear himself. So there's there's this sort of blending of different stories and it's very very hard to pick them apart one of the things that that bugs me most about this is and i i used it as the title of of my recent book because i was looking for a way to describe the vikings that wasn't the vikings <laughs> um i i called it the children of ash and elm because the the first human couple um the first man the first woman were fashioned from trees an ash tree and an elm tree the old norse words are asker and embla and then there's the fact that the first human couple have names beginning with A and E. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, ah. Oh. And, and I don't know. Well, Neil, could we just focus in on an aspect that pretty clearly doesn't come from Christianity? Because as you point out in The Viking Way, uh, the thing that's distinctive about Scandinavia, the Viking world, is absolutely it has the, the Christian German world to the south and in England, of course. Um, but in the north, we have in the kind of subpolar regions, the really frozen wastes of Scandinavia, we have people called Sami. And your thesis in the book is that they actually have quite an influence on the Vikings um, and perhaps the way that the, the Vikings conceptualize the world. And focusing in on Odin, you, you say about him and this, this idea that Odin is a god full of contradictions and paradoxes, that chief amongst, the, uh, amongst his many powers is his role as the male war god. But simultaneously, as master of the female sorcery of Sethach, I hope I pronounced that right, which was supposedly shameful for men to perform. So Sethach, the role, the influence of people in the far north, the, this sense of Odin as a god who blends 
warfare, but also a kind of more female practice of sorcery. What is going on there and how important is it, do you think? To take the first part, with the Sami, I think they're perceived as the kind of the people of the, the land of the midnight sun and the people of a northern periphery, well, even now as well, actually. But, but in the Viking Age, we know that the Sami lived over an awful large part of the, the Scandinavian peninsula. And I think one of the things that's been missed about the Viking Age is that to a large degree, um, Scandinavia is a place that supports two quite distinct populations, the, the Norse and the Sami, living side by side, almost literally side by side in, in adjacent settlements and so on. And that arena of contacts between the two is, is very complicated and, as you can imagine, operates at all kinds of levels, um, including that of, of the spiritual and, and, and what we later call religion. And part of that is that Sami spirituality, their, their beliefs and their practices, is, is very much part of the, the kind of circumpolar belt of what anthropologists call shamanism. This idea of a, a world full of souls and special people, shamans, the, one of the Sami words for them is noaiti, special people whose job it is to get in touch with that world and act as an intermediary to communicate with it on your behalf. And you know, to do all kinds of things, to, to cure illnesses, to make sure that your reindeer are okay, or to harm your enemies, you know, get rid of your horrible neighbours or whatever, whatever you want. You know. And I think, and I'm not alone in this, this is quite a long tradition of research in it, there's a lot of similarities in this with this sort of magical practice called seder, which is, I think, the the central component of the Viking relationship with for want of a better word, the supernatural. And when I, when I said earlier that I, I think the gods are in some ways quite distant from ordinary people's lives, I think magic is central to them. And even if you look at the later medieval sources, the, the great Icelandic sagas, they're saturated with magic. They're almost in every story, there's some kind of either magical process going on or people who know a bit more than other people. You know, it, it's there all the time. And at the centre of this, I, I'm going to mix my metaphors in some grotesque way now, but the, the centre of this sort of web is Odin. He is the supreme master of this sather magic. And in the, the medieval sources, it's very clearly described that this is a magic primarily for women. It's only proper for women to perform it. And in that, as in many other things, it's clear that women have a peculiarly powerful um, access to the supernatural. It's, it's one of the, the, the central roles of, of female power in the Viking Age, this, this gateway to, to the other and control of that, that access, which is a bit surprising in Odin's case because he's you know, the god of kings, the, the, the god of elites. He's, he's one, of, one of the main war gods, as, as you said. And here he is practising women's magic. And those kinds of contradictions, there's a lot of um, enormous uh, packages of prejudices attaching to men who perform magic. Um, they're, they're sort of everything that a proper Viking Age man should not be. That's often been interpreted in terms of um, cowardice or homophobia and th things like that. But it may equally be a challenging of boundaries. It's, it's very hard to be sure. Yeah. But what's clear with Odin is that, it's a very long answer to your long and complicated question. But well, it was a very long question, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. But, <laughs> so, but he the thing with Odin is that he embodies those contradictions. Yeah. And I do wonder sometimes, bearing in mind how hard it is to really know about this, I, I wonder whether what we see as, isn't that strange that this doesn't quite make sense, is actually just a, a way of presenting ambiguity that nobody found strange at the time. And if my kind of work with the Vikings has any kind of single takeaway mission, 
it's to acknowledge the complexity of the Viking Age, the diversity of it. Well, Neil, I think that sets us up perfectly for part two, where I, I would love to look a bit more closely at how this sorcery, this magic, this Sather might have operated in the Viking world. So we'll take a break now. And then when we come back, we'll be looking at all kinds of things, including, uh, and I'm going to give the listeners a teaser here, probably, I think one of my favorite sentences in any work of scholarship I've ever read. And <laughs> you say, as we shall see, horses and their genitals had associations with sorcery in the Viking age. An Odin stallion may be seen in this context. Inside Tom Holland, there is... <laughs> A 14-year-old boy struggling to get out. <laughs> As we shall see in part two, all kinds of remarkable weird shit to tease out. See you in a few minutes. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.
how did onlookers feel watching this ritual entombment and then walking away, going home or to some continued funeral ceremony, or passing the sealed mound in the subsequent hours and days? How did they articulate their knowledge that inside that grave a woman they knew was slowly suffocating, dying in the dark beside the rotting body of her partner, that one day the same fate might be theirs? To us this seems unthinkable, and yet to at least some of the people of the Viking Age, it clearly was not. Why? What does this tell us about them? And in this, how far can we trust the judgment of a thousand years of hindsight? So that was Professor Neil Price talking about the entombment of Viking slave girls alongside their dead masters. And Tom, we talked about a, a horrific Viking funeral in our episode on the Vikings in the East. And that's actually something that there's been a lot of correspondence about among our listeners, a lot of chat on our Discord channel for our Rest is History Club members, because that image of the funeral and the sheer horror of it is something that really lingers in your mind. You can never, un- you can never forget it, can you? Yeah, and I got Neil with us talking about Viking sorcery. And uh, that's why that passage where you talk, I mean, basically, it reads like you as a scholar are essentially throwing your hands up and saying, this is, I, I, I cannot compute what it must have been like to live in that world. I mean, your understanding of Viking sorcery, of magic, of how they saw the world, has that enabled you to get a handle on, you know, to answer questions that you ask in that? What is this telling us about how they saw the world? How would they have felt about knowing that, you know, that a girl was was starving to death or next to the, the corpse of her owner? I'd like to think that after 30 years of studying the Vikings, I understand them better. Um, there's a danger in that as well. Um, in, and in writing the kind of passage like that Dominic's just, just cited, um, and I, I still do this every now and then, I write sort of things that are slightly more fictionalised and you know, almost like little stories. And I, I, I think it's important to, to try to approach that experiential view of the past. And in particular, with regard to Ibn Fadlan, the Arab diplomat who described this funeral on the Volga, There have been so many earlier accounts that focus on the sex and violence as if it's something almost like some kind of spicy orgy. And it's not. It's horrific. And if if anyone has the slightest tendency to to see the Vikings in a heroic light, they need to read Ibn Fadlan carefully because it's it's a powerful antidote to that. So that was part of what I wanted to to get closer to it. Um, I I think to answer your question, Tom, um, I'm reminded of a, a... a remark I really liked in a, in a review of, of my recent book, um, which is not really positive or negative. It's, it's um, a, a comment that uh, first I thought was a bit superficial, and then I thought it was really deep. It's, it's one of those. Um, and it really made me think. It was, um, the better we understand the Vikings, the more comfortable we are with how little we really know about them. Yeah. And that, that gave me comfort, and I think that's where we are. But that attempt to understand the the difference of their view of the world, like in the kind of things that you just described, um, particularly funerary sacrifice, and not just of enslaved people, but of, of people's partners and, and, you know, even friends sometimes. Uh, it, it's, it's so alien to us, and it clearly wasn't to them. And it's that kind of extremity of experience that is part of what I think we need to look at in the Viking Age. At the same time as not exoticizing it, because I think most people just stayed on their farms and and never went anywhere or did any harm to anybody. Uh, so you've got this tremendous richness 
in there. Would it be fair to say, based on something like that, the sacrifice of the girl in the Ibn Fadlan account, or the example that you gave um, there about the, the ritual entombment, would it be fair to say that the Vikings, in their view of the world and their view of the relationship between the sort of material and the spiritual, are a crueler, more violent people than A, we are now, I mean, I don't mean to to sort of heap praise upon ourselves, or B, than we have given them credit for, as it were, than we than we commonly think. In other words, are they more are they are they more unsettling, do you think? I'd go with the last part. I certainly think they're unsettling. They unsettle me. Um I, I often say that the Vikings are, are supremely interesting, but that's not at all the same as being admirable. Right. It's a good thing to to yeah. bear in mind. As to whether they were crueler, I I, I it's not a comparison I'd make, really. Violence is a big part of the Viking stereotype, particularly with the raids. And I don't think we should minimise that. They they really did do their level best to burn down half of Europe. Um, and the cliches of them, you know, um, chasing the English and frightening the clergy and so on, is, they're real. Um, but that's only part of their world. And it's not as if the rest of the world was, was wonderfully peaceful, because it certainly wasn't. I think that... The, the violent aspects of their religion are startling, and they were clearly startling to their contemporaries. Um, and not, not just to people, to uh, the, their treatment of animals, the, the mass slaughter of horses and cattle and dogs and birds and, and things as part of their funerals. And that's something we really see in the archaeology. Um, is difficult for us to imagine in, in some of the big boat burials, the classic sort of Viking ship graves, um, you, you find sort of 13, 14 decapitated horses. You know, the, the ground round those ships was... Sorry, this isn't probably an episode for children, is it? But uh, the, the ground round those ships would be crimson. Um, and they'd hang them from trees, wouldn't they? So at Uppsala, your home university, it's <laughs> kind of great trees, weren't they? And they or at least according to Christian sources. Yes, to, to, uh, to Adama Bremen, who was writing about 1070, there's, there's a sacred grove at the, uh, the temple precinct of, of old Uppsala. Um, where trees are full of hanging bodies. And there's there's one archaeological example that does seem to be something like that. It's up in the north of Sweden, where, um, if I remember correctly, there's five whole bears that seem to be yeah, hanging that's from very, this tree. It, it's very uh, odd, isn't it? I, I once alarmed some people. I was on a, a, a committee to sort of design new museum displays for the National Museum here, and I suggested that they should stuff five bears and string them up. And <laughs> at this point, I was sort of quietly ushered from the room. <laughs> um, it would have been great. I mean, but, well, uh, well yeah. Neil, you mentioned horses. And of course, uh, before, the, uh, before the break, we teased the listeners with a discussion of horses and their genitals. And I should say that, that in, you know, I sent some notes about what I wanted to talk about, and I put horse penises WTF question mark. So WTF question mark? <laughs> What's going on with the horse penises? Um, this comes down to uh, a poem uh, that's in, in recorded in a, a much later manuscript. So this is a, a medieval story, and its title translates to the uh, the tale of Volsi. And Volsi is a is a name, and what it what it's about really is a, a Christian king of Norway in the late Viking age who's heard some rumours that some of his more rural subjects are, are not as Christian as, as he'd like. So he disguises himself, and with his men, he goes off to, on a sort of tour. Um, and at one point, he comes to a, a farmhouse and is invited in as a guest because they don't know who he is. Um, and he finds himself a participant in a, a ritual where the, the woman of the household, who seems to be in charge, um, fishes out from a box a, a preserved horse's penis that's been wrapped in, in linen and preserved with herbs and things. And uh, 
sort of around the dinner table, they, they pass this object from one person to another, as you do. And, uh, and as each person takes the horse's penis, and, the, and, and this is the thing called Volsi, um, the, the penis itself, um, they speak a verse. And the, the verse is, is highly sexual and explicit. It's kind of uh, 101 things to do with a preserved horse's penis, basically. You can let your imaginations dwell on that. And, um, and, and the king is appropriately horrified because this isn't really what he has in mind with you know, the new Christianity. And, um, and he interrupts the ritual and um, seizes this object and throws it to the dog. And what happens is you know, hilarity ensues and the, 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 the local people of the farmhouse are not very happy about this. And the, the, the woman who's in charge, she asks the men to lift her up to look over door lintels and door hinges. So she's being lifted up to look over the door. And this makes as much sense as it sounds. It's very hard to understand what's going on. But when she looks over the door, she seems to have a vision of some other place. And she's trying to retrieve the Volsi that the king has desecrated. That's, that's so interesting because that is in Ibn Fadlan's account isn't it the, the slave girl looks over the door and she says i see my master isn't that right yes this is this is the thing that um for a long time um Vilsathata, the the tale of Velsi was dismissed as a kind of a kind of medieval burlesque of sort of racy goings on among the peasantry that had nothing to do with any kind of viking age reality um there've been other studies that actually really are taking it quite seriously as a as a preserved poem that has something to do with an actual Viking Age ritual. But the thing that really kind of charges that discussion is what you've just mentioned, is that in Ibn Fadlan's account of this great ship burial, the, the one that's so horrific and so detailed on the Volga in 922, and, and just to be, to be clear, you know, we're talking an Arab account of a burial in Russia a mm. hundred years earlier than this totally independent account that comes out of Norway um, describing the 11th century and is, and is actually written down much later. So there's no relationship at all between these accounts. And yet in Ibn Fadlan, as, as he said, he describes the enslaved woman being lifted up to look over a door, which is a very specific thing to do. And as she does so, she has a vision of another world. And I think that is really such a close link to Vilsathata. And bear in mind, Ibn Fadlan's is an eyewitness account, and I think we yeah. can trust it. It really does imply that whatever it is they're doing with their preserved horse's penis might be real. Well, that sends a shiver down the spine. If ever you go to a dinner party, Tom, and somebody <laughs> passes you one of those, you know what's coming. <laughs> well, it depends. I don't think I'd have the courage to throw it to a dog. <laughs> Would you? I don't think so. Um, but, but, Neil, just sticking to, as it were... To, to horse penises, um, you you associate it also with with Sleipnir, who is the eight legged horse that Odin rides, um, and that's quite that's quite shamanistic, isn't it? Going back to that idea of of Setha, of of this distinctive understanding of sorcery that you get from the, the far north. Yeah, um, in, in two ways, um, th there are so many kind of crossovers between the descriptions of these Setha rituals, and there's there's other kinds of magic as well, but but Setha is the main one. Descriptions of that magic in a whole range of Icelandic saga sources and some poems as well um, that have clear links to what we know of circumpolar shamanism from much later periods. So if you bring all these sources together, you really can make a coherent case for this being part of a kind of, broadly speaking, a shamanic circumpolar ritual world. 
And in particular, for example, um, animals that have more legs than they do in in nature, like Sleipnir. This is Odin's eight-legged stallion. Um, his name means the sliding one. It can slip between the worlds. He has runes etched on his teeth. So that, that's one of the links there. But also this idea of sexuality as a, a one of the big constants of Sather magic. And it may also be that part of the rituals themselves are, are sexual in, in nature. Um, so there is the sort of multi multiple layers of meaning in this magic. And we know that there are sexual we say restrictions, taboos built into it, like for example, that it's it can only be properly performed by women, and it may be that some of the sexual aspects of the magic itself and the purposes of the magic are, are linked to that. So th- this, along with this idea of war magic, broadly speaking, or shamanism, and, and and the importance of all of this in people's lives, the the aspect of of sexuality in that ritual world is also something that I think was ignored for a very long time. And it's something that a lot of people are working on now. Mm. Are, the, um, are the Valkyries sexual figures, Neil, do you think? Or are they purely war figures? I think absolutely not. Um, I think also, as with so much else of the, of, to do with the Vikings, um, to get at anything resembling a kind of Viking Age reality, which, you know, as, as you know, is a very difficult thing to do, we have to unpeel layers and layers of later kind of... yeah stories and accretions and this idea of the valkyries as kind of beautiful handmaidens of odin who sort of sweep warriors off the battlefield to some kind of eternal party in in valhalla it's very much something that is it begins in the middle ages and then builds and builds and then obviously the the sort of ultimate manifestation of it is wagner that's that's where we get our our view of the valkyries now really yeah if you try and go back to a kind of primal Valkyrie, for want of a better term, and that's very hard to do, if you look at things like the Valkyrie names... Oh, yes. So give us some of your favourite Valkyrie names. <laughs> well, I, I found 52 of them. There may be more. And it's clear that there are lots of others, just sort of general Valkyries that don't happen to get named in the sources. But there's a lot of Valkyries. And their names are overwhelmingly graphic descriptions of aspects of battle and war. Which is not surprising because their their name means choosers of the slain. Yeah. Their purpose is to um, intervene on the battlefield and take the the spirits of of the best warriors to Odin's hall. So you list all these names, and you've got helmet clatter, sword noise, battle weaver, howling, chain pricker, uh, council trace, shield scraper, disorder, very violent, very cruel, victory urger, and teeth grinder. I mean, that, just scratching the surface there. Yeah. But Shield scraper is one of my yeah. favourites. But I yeah. mean, if any listeners out there, you know, they've got daughters and they, they need a... I think Very Cruel is a great name. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> There's also a lot of them whose name means noise, different aspects of noise. It really gives you the idea of what a chaotic, yeah. loud place a, a medieval battlefield was. Mm. And I see those early Valkyries not so much as a sort of hand, you know, handmaidens of Odin who... who kind of visit the battlefield. I think they're unleashed on it. And I think right. they're more like demons of carnage than anything else. There's very little to suggest that they're physically attractive or, or any of those sort of later stereotypes. Um, they're terrifying, basically. You quote also from this terrifying poem. The web of spears. The web yeah. of spears. So men's heads served as loom weights, intestines from men as weft and warp. I mean, it's such a I mean, one of the most unsettling poems that you could ever imagine, this, this idea of a battle as a, a tapestry woven out of intestines. 
it's appended to a, 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 a famous saga, um, but it's probably much older than the saga itself. And it describes a group of uh, a, a group of women who are later described as Valkyries, um, who are weaving on a loom completely constructed of, of human body parts, as as you say, and the the fabric that they're creating is is built of of blood and and, and flesh. And there's this very clear idea that as they're weaving, they are weaving the outcome of a distant battle taking place at the same time. And you get this sense of when they're moving the, the, the weaving tools sort of in and out of the fabric, this is the flight of arrows and the, the you know, people throwing spears. They, they're actually making the battle. And this is another thing that attaches to the Valkyries. Um, it's a kind of crossover with the Norns, these three women of fate. This idea that the Valkyries not only kind of deal with the aftermath of battle they might shape it as well presumably i mean that's part of the appeal of of sather if it's it's going on is that you can invoke this magic to influence the course of battle and to kind of blunt the weapon of your enemy or make him freeze or something like that yeah i think it's also we we, we talked earlier about um how important odin is in this sort of web of magic part of his qualities to do with war are concerned with the mind if you think about all this this chaos of a medieval battlefield, as in the names of the Valkyries, the, the noise and the, the, the violence and so on, there's a constant emphasis in poetry of being clear-headed in battle. You really need to know who's in front of you, who's beside you, who's that over there. And they're not wearing uniforms, you know. Um, and this idea of mental clarity or a kind of mental fog, which is lethal, um, that is the kind of thing that Odin brings to the battlefield. So one of the Valkyrie names means the war fetter, um, like the, the chain. Um, and what that means in practice is that's the thing that makes you hesitate when you absolutely shouldn't. It's the thing that makes you trip or, or drop your weapon or whatever. Um, and that is the form that some of this this battle magic really took, I think. So does that imply, Neil, that the the common, as it were, urban myth that Viking warriors are, are, are turning themselves into berserkers by swallowing mushrooms or, or drinking or whatever, that that's incorrect. Because, I mean, it's always struck me that if I were in a battle, I would want to be, I'd really want to have my wits about me. So so do you think that is that is overstated, the sort of berserker um, stereotype? Very much so, yes. E- even in the in the most sort of lurid sources, the, the berserkers, and the, there's a sort of cousins to them called Ulfednar, Basically, berserkers are connected with bears and Ulfothina are connected with wolves, but they're kind of the same thing. They're, they're always in a minority, a tiny minority. There's a big debate in scholarship at the moment as to whether they were real at all or whether they're a kind of literary motif from the Middle Ages or alternatively whether they were real but more a kind of a matter of ritual performance, a sort of way to psych yourself up rather than anybody actually doing this in battle. Personally, I'm more inclined to the idea that they really existed um, and that they are, it, it, it's easy to make these kind of crass comparisons, but a, a sort of sort of Viking special forces, basically. They're, they're elite soldiers. Um, there is no suggestion whatsoever in, in early sources that uh, they took mushrooms or any kind of hallucinogen. Um, and there are plenty of other ways to sort of work yourself up into a, into a, a fighting rage. So I, I think the jury is out on the berserkers. There are a lot of depictions in Viking Age art or Viking Age iconography of men and sometimes women who appear to be wearing animal skins or costumes. And there are a couple of masks that have been found in a, uh, as part of a shipwreck, actually, in a, in a Danish town harbour, um, which 
are made of felt and just cover the the portion of the face that wouldn't be covered by by chainmail, for example. And they they look. It's hard to say what animals they are, but they're definitely animals. They look to me a bit like bulls, but they could be dogs. They could be wolves. God, I mean, imagine you're a monk. Yeah. <laughs> and all these guys with masks are terrifying and very different well thing. very different and so i'm just prompted to wonder whether for vikings the actual experience of battle itself is a kind of a ritual in which you experience spirits or the divine it's a way of obviously battle is a way of defeating your enemies and stealing their, their wealth but is it also a way of having communion with in a very intense form perhaps with spirits that you wouldn't otherwise have experience of, do you think? I suspect that for some of them, the answer is probably yes. Uh, I don't think that's a sort of a general kind of experience of everybody in the Viking Age or even every sort of proper Viking, you know, an actual sort of piratical Viking. Um, but we know that, for example, the the kind of war cult of Odin has an element of kind of ecstatic fury, for want of a better word. Um, and and there's there's an element of rage and being out of yourself um, that very much attaches to Odin. And I think this idea of there being kind of Odinic warriors is, is probably real. Um, but it's, again, it's very hard to get back to any kind of detail about it. I'm very conscious when I talk about things like this, it's kind of, sort of speculation upon speculation, yeah. but that's that's what we've got. That's your job. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Neil, you've given you've given you know a brilliant kind of tour de raison. Can I ask one question before we wrap up, Tom? Yeah, of course. Sorry. Yeah. The question is: How long does this mindset, this attitude towards the spiritual world, endure? Because obviously, um, Scandinavia was Christianized, and, and you gave the example of the. I mean, you said the sort of ten fifties, ten sixties is the the end of the Viking Age, and Christianity and the Christianization obviously plays an enormous part in that kind of dating. But presumably, this way of thinking about the natural, and I know we're not meant to use the word the supernatural, must have endured for generations after the sort of nominal Christianization of what become the Scandinavian kingdoms. Yes, I think it, I think it did. If you look at the kind of classic superstructure of Norse spirituality, the gods, I think they disappear rather fast. Um, and th it's, there's clearly an attempt to introduce a kind of Christian concept of the divine that replaces the Norse one, especially obviously with, with one god. Um, but all of those more everyday aspects of belief, the, the elves that live behind your house that we talked about, I think they stay for a very long time. Uh, you can trace them in later folklore and folk custom. You can trace them in laws as well. I mean, medieval Christianity still had quite a lively belief in dark powers of various kinds. I mean, Neil, Alfred the Great, who's impeccably Christian, is named after an elf. So elves are clearly still part of the fabric in Christian England as well as in Scandinavia, I would guess. And I, f I find law codes are very useful like that because they tend to be rather dry documents and you don't forbid people from doing something that nobody ever does. <laughs> right. um, so, and so, if it, there, there are laws that you mustn't wake up trolls and ask them things and, and, and so I so don't enough. do that. Yeah, so yeah. good advice. But um, but but lots of, lots of things like that that you 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 know mustn't perform magic in various ways, which which implies that 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 might you know succeed if you, if you yeah. if you did it. And I think there's a 
a very clear path to be traced from Sather and those things we were talking about earlier to, to medieval witchcraft, this idea of a, of a different world of powers. What changes in the Middle Ages is that this is given negative connotations, which it doesn't necessarily have in, in the pre-Christian period. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Neil. Thank you. It's something we've been looking forward to for, for ages. Um, Definitely. Very, very grateful. Such a strange and interesting story. Absolutely fascinating story. And I gather you're off to Borneo, is that right, in a couple of days? <laughs> yes, so. I am, yeah. Yeah. No, no Vikings there. <laughs> so have a wonderful time in Borneo and many, many thanks. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back soon with more. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.